Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. I usually send out, or Havala usually sends out an email on Wednesday to those of you that are on email list to tell you what we're going to talk about on Sunday. The reason we do that is because I want to give you an opportunity to read ahead so that you get more out of it when you get here. And I know you all do that. You all read the emails. You can't wait till five o'clock on Wednesday. You're like, listen, more mass email from another group. I'm going to read. I know you do. All of you do. And you get that sermon and you're like, you know what? I'm going to read ahead and I'm being sarcastic. Those of you that don't know what sarcasm is, it's one of the unnamed gifts in the Bible. And I have it in spades. Um, If there was ever a week where I was like, maybe I shouldn't send out the title in advance this week. The title of today's sermon is Divorce and Swearing Oaths. And I was like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't send that one out. That's probably not the one that if you wanted to put a sign out there on Campbell Boulevard that talked about what we would speak about on Sunday, I thought no one's going to show up for church. Anybody who reads their email is not going to show up for church. So none of y'all read your emails, but you're here. I thought about just shortening it to Divorce and Swearing because, you know, one leads to the other usually, one one way or the other, but... Um, The reality is, uh, life doesn't always go according to plan. I've had the privilege in my 25 years in one day of being a pastor to perform a a little bit under 200 weddings. And almost all of those couples came to me for some form of counseling before they got married. You know, and, and, and at that point, um, they're not thinking about, a lot of things they're not thinking about at that point. And there's a lot of things they are thinking about at that point. But it's impossible, that any of you who have ever been married, it's impossible to adequately prepare for it. You don't have, you know, you, no matter how many years you have, there's only so much preparation you can do. I've yet to run into a couple getting ready to be married who say, you know what we really hope our marriage ends up as? We want to be miserable. We're just hoping, you know, our lives are going so well, but we thought if we get married, we'll finally know what misery is really like. We will finally know what it's like to just be so angry at somebody that you can't even think straight. And we're really hoping that 20 years from now, we are just absolutely divorced. No one says that to me. No one thinks that. And yet the reality is, I think if we're honest, in our family here, most of us, in some way, shape, or form, have been touched by divorce. For ourselves, maybe for a parent, for a child, a friend. Jesus doesn't say a whole lot about divorce and marriage, but it's not because he doesn't think that marriage is important. He just doesn't give us a whole lot in terms of, he really only talks about it directly twice. And we can find both of those times in the Gospel of Matthew. But it's important. And we've been studying through, just to reorient us, we've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest recorded sermon of Jesus that we've got. 
took place on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's on a mountain. He's probably looking down the slope. He started talking to his disciples, and as the sermon progressed, more people gathered around the would-be disciples. And what was he talking about? Stuff that was really, really important. I know you're like, well, pastor, that's kind of lame. The whole Bible's important. It is. If it's in the Bible, it's important, says the Bible. Paul said to Timothy, every verse in the Bible is useful. Look, there's some verses in the Bible that I'm still trying to figure out, okay, God, I know what's in here. How is that useful? And there's that one story in the Old Testament about, you know, the prophet prayed and a bear came down and mauled like 39 kids or something. There's some weird stuff in the Bible. Like, I know it's useful. I don't know what that's useful. Have you read through numbers? Or try, have you fallen asleep? This tribe had 66,000 people. This one has, and you're like, okay, God, I know it's useful, but really? Of all the questions you didn't answer, you put that one in there. But it's all useful. There's some things, though, that might be a little bit more useful than others. That doesn't mean those things aren't useful or that they're not important. This sermon's really important. Why? Because it's where Jesus describes to us in plain but shocking language what a Christian really is, what a Christian really does, and how you know if you are one or not. And probably more importantly to some of you, in this sermon, Jesus also says, there's a third category. There's Christians, there's, and they know they're Christians. There's people who aren't Christians, and they know they're not Christians. And then there's a third group of people. These are people who think they're Christians, but they're really not. And he tells us how to know where we land. He talks about what Christians are supposed to do and what we're supposed to be. Really important stuff. And he started this sermon off, and we've already studied. He starts off by saying, here's how you know if you're really a Christian, because you'll see these attitudes in your life. And now he's into a part of the sermon where he's correcting some bad teaching that his listeners had received from their teachers. You've got to be pretty bold and pretty confident. You know, I'm trying to think, you know, I see a lot of high schoolers in the room. You've got to be pretty bold as a high schooler to, like, stop your, your algebra teacher. Well, you probably already had algebra. Geometry, calculus, whatever you're at. What math do you have right now, Daniel? Statistics. Oh, my heart went pitter-patter. You actually have a class called Statistics. Man, I got ripped off. I had to go to calculus, and I wanted to be a pastor, so that never really worked. But statistics, I'd have been all about that. For Daniel to stand up and say to his, to his, uh, to his statistics teacher, listen, you know, I appreciate everything you've been teaching, um, but if I could have the floor for a minute, uh, and takes a dry erase marker and goes up and says, listen, I know you've been taught this way to do this particular course. Let me show you how it's really done. The kids, first of all, I don't know that you'd get that far. But the kids in the class would be like, what is going on right now? Well, Jesus is essentially stepping up and saying, here, I know you've been taught the law. Here's what the law originally said. Let me quote it for you. Now let me tell you how all your famous popular teachers have distorted it. And then let me give it back to you the right way. You got to be pretty confident. And Jesus was that. He was confident. He was humble. He was meek. But he was confident. So I was nice enough to let Pastor James tackle the topic of adultery last week because I love Pastor James and I trust him. And what, if you were here last week, or even if you weren't, here's basically the train of thought that Jesus is on when he gets to the part we're going to read. What they had been taught was that as long as you don't do anything physical, then you've not committed adultery. But Jesus says, look, 
Even if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery in his heart. And what Jesus is saying is, that's not better than actually committing adultery. He's saying adultery doesn't start on the outside of you, it starts on the inside of you. And he said it's not a problem with a man looking at a woman or a woman looking at a man. That's not the problem. The problem is the lusting. It's not the looking. It's the lusting. He says, and that is a sin, and that sin is called adultery. And he continues the idea of adultery into this next part. Now, I'm just going to tell you, fair warning, today I have to teach a little bit on marriage and divorce and on swearing oaths. It doesn't make me nervous to talk about these topics. I'm not confused about what the Bible teaches or what Jesus means. But I do approach this with a little, I don't want to say hesitation. I approach it cautiously today because here's what I know. At the end of the day, I am a pastor. And I'm a pastor who loves you and cares about you. And I know some of your stories, not all of your stories. But when I talk about marriage and divorce, I just know it's hard to hear sometimes. And if you've been hurt by divorce in any way, shape, or form, this is not necessarily the most exciting thing to hear about. It can almost feel like I'm trying, like, like, oh man, the pastor's just ripping a scab off of a wound in my heart today. I just want you to know that is not my intention whatsoever. I think there's something we can all hear from this because in this room and in this family and watching at home or listening, listening on podcast, there are some of you who are not married. You are unmarried. You know what the Bible says about being unmarried? It says there's a unique blessing from God on your life if you're not married. It doesn't mean that, you know, class A in life are the married people, class B are the unhappily married people, and class C are the unmarried people. And that somehow there's something broken or wrong with you if you're not married. Not necessarily so. I'm married and there's things broken and wrong with me. We're all broken. problems with all of us. But the apostle Paul in his letters says, listen, if you're unmarried, don't think it's a curse. God gives a blessing to you when you're unmarried. But there are some of you who say, I'm unmarried and content to live unmarried. Awesome. That's a blessing from God. There's things in your life you can enjoy. And while we're on that topic, you're thinking, well, pastor, what, what does the Bible say about that? Paul says a few very practical things. He says, listen, if you're not married, number one thing, your life is less complicated than if you were married. Amen? (laughs) well okay you're sitting next to your spouse you can't say that Paul gets very practical he's like listen if you want to leave your house and travel for three weeks and not know when you're coming home easier to do if you're not married is that not true if you are married and you leave your house for three weeks and you don't tell anybody when you're coming home you might as well just stay gone now think about it could Paul have been the type of missionary that he was if he also had a responsibility of being a husband and a dad at the same time, probably he never could have pursued God's calling if that was a reality in his life. And he spoke to the Corinthian church and he said, listen, if you're really passionate about ministry, hey, better off to stay unmarried because you can make ministry second in importance to your relationship to God. But if you get married, something else comes in priority order before your ministry. He was just speaking practically. He wasn't downing marriage. He was elevating people with big platforms. I want you to know what God says about marriage. In fact, I'll, I'll jump right ahead right now. Here's, let me just give you in the shortest form that I can. We're on a math. Here's a good mathematical equation. Here's how God defines it. One man plus one woman for one lifetime. That's God's definition. 
Don't shout me down now. (laughs) Genesis 2, Matthew 5, Matthew 19. God's idea for marriage is one man married to one woman for one lifetime. That's his plan. That's ideal to him. That's God's definition of what it is. Now, it goes beyond that. There's more to it than that, obviously. But that's the basic equation. And haven't we pushed back at every part of that equation? We've pushed back at the one man to one woman. We've pushed back at the has to be a man and a woman, not a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or however you define with whoever you define. To, and we've pushed back at the one lifetime part. We've pushed back at all of it. They did too. I just want you to know that as I'm approaching this today, my goal is not to heap guilt or shame on anybody. If you're not married, you need to know what the Bible says about marriage and divorce. If you are married today and you're happily married today, I want you to be encouraged. If you're married today and you're unhappily married today, I want you to be encouraged. If you've been divorced, I want you to be encouraged I don't want you to walk out of here with condemnation. You know what? I want you to receive grace. I want you to be completely healed from all the hurt and damage that divorce can cause in our lives. And I want you to have a track to run on moving forward. So let's read what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 5 about marriage and divorce. Now that everybody's excited about this one, let's think we've opened up the Pandora's box and let's figure it out here. Here's what Jesus says. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. You've heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. You see the little quotes inside the quotes there? the single apostrophes, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Who wrote Deuteronomy? Moses. All right, two of you are still with me. The rest of you are gone. Come back to me, okay? Jesus is quoting the law of Moses. Where did Moses get the law? I'm not asking hard questions. Where did Moses get the law from? Okay. Jesus is quoting his own word that allows under certain circumstances for divorce. That's what he's quoting here. And this is the sentence that the Jews were totally debating. Okay. Jesus says, here's what you've been taught. A man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she's been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Verse 33. You've also said, now he's going to tackle another distortion of the law. You've also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out every vow, every oath, every promise you make to the Lord. Now, some of you love verse 34, the first part. I say, don't make any vows. And you're like, yes. I'm not promising to pay my car back. I'm not promising to pay my house back. I'm not making any marital vows. I'm not promising to give money to the church or to the missionaries. I am just not promising anything. Not what he's saying. Let's keep reading. He says, don't say, I swear by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. 
Don't say, I promise by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. Do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Please, no bald jokes, okay? You can't do it. Just a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Now, I did the best that I could after all the time I've wrestled with these verses and let these verses wrestle with me to figure out how can I concentrate these verses down to a concluding statement or two. And so today I'll give you the conclusion to the movie first. Here's what I've got out of these six verses. Here's what I think brings these two ideas together. Jesus is teaching on divorce and Jesus is teaching on what it means to make promises or swear oaths. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. And a little footnote I can't pretend that I don't know that Jesus said a little bit more about divorce than what we read here. I know he talks about it again in Matthew chapter 19. I'll read it to you in a second. And I'm borrowing Jesus' own words from Matthew 19 and bringing it back here. Here's what I think Jesus is wanting us to take away from this and wanting them to take away from it. Divorce, it's not the result of God's ideas. Divorce is a result of hard hearts. Swearing oaths is a result of our human habit of just not keeping our word, of untruthfulness. Both, meaning divorce and swearing oaths, in some cases, both are permitted by God. He permits them in some cases. But neither of these things are commanded. God never commands you You have to divorce somebody if they cross this line. If your husband cheats on you, you're commanded to divorce him. God doesn't command that. If your wife wants to abandon you, I command you, you file for divorce. Doesn't command it. But in some cases, he does permit it. Why? Because some things life just doesn't work out the way that God planned it to. The way that God intended it to. And so he has to make some concessions because of our weakness, because of our brokenness. So both are in some cases permitted. Neither are commanded. And in God's kingdom, what he's trying to say to us is in my kingdom, divorce shouldn't be necessary. Think about that for a second. If I live a life of Christ-likeness, divorce shouldn't be necessary. If I live in a a life of Christ-likeness and I'm in a community of Christ-like people, I shouldn't need to say, I promise, I'll bring it back to you, I promise. Cross my heart, hope that I stick a needle in my, I shouldn't have to add superlatives onto my word to make you to believe me. I should just be able to say, yes, I'll bring it back tomorrow at noon. And I should honor that word and you should be able to trust that. This is what Jesus is saying to us. And so let's, let's peel back the onion a little bit and see a little bit more of this here. Um, here's what we have to do in each of these sections when we're looking at marriage and divorce and when we're looking about swearing oaths. We need to see what law that they already had at that time was controversial. How did the Pharisees distort it when they taught Jesus' listeners about it? And then how does Jesus correct it? So let's look first. Here's what was going on in that day when it came to marriage and divorce. Here's what the law actually said. Moses' law that he got from God, that he writes about in Deuteronomy 24, did indeed permit divorce but under limited ground or conditions. I know we live in a day and an age where you like, pastor, shorten it down as much as you can, make it as simple, as basic as you can. You can't make this shorter than what it is. 
Because what you get is Mosaic law permitted divorce. That's it. Awesome. God lets me out of marriage if I want to out. No. Under limited grounds or conditions. Okay, well, let's get really specific now about, you know, before I say I do, what are the specific grounds or conditions? What's the fine print in the contract? What are all the different ways I can get out of this? Do you know the whole reason, the motivation, why this was even a controversy back then? I'm going to tell it to you. You need to let this sink in. Jewish men did not want to be stuck in an unhappy marriage with no way out. That's why. That's exactly why Jesus affirms that in Matthew 19. Jewish men did not want to be stuck in an unpleasing or an unhappy marriage with no way out. And so they spent more of their time thinking about how they could make it easier to get out of marriage, then they talked about how they could commit themselves to remaining in marriage even when it wasn't happy today, even when it wasn't pleasant today. And as I start talking about that, I can already feel in the room, trust me, I felt it this morning, when you start talking about how God really feels about marriage, it does one of two things to your heart. You either get angry and frustrated and offended and you push it away and you want to try and find a way to interpret it that makes it easier for you to obey, which is what the Pharisees were doing. Can we find a way to take the law and soften it enough to make it easier to obey or you say, Lord, grow me to that standard. That's who I want to be. That's how I want to live. The Mosaic law did permit it under certain conditions. I'll read to you Deuteronomy 24.1. I have it uh, here. I can find it here faster than I can turn to it. Here's, what it. here's the verse in controversy. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and he gives it to her and sends her from his house and then it's a run-on sentence for five verses. The circumstance, the grounds that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy under which divorce could be entertained went something like this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Now, which of those words in that fragment of a sentence do you think the Jewish men wanted clarity about what it really means? Which of those words was it? indecent, or in maybe some of your translations it would say unclean. The only way that Moses was entertaining divorce in God's law was if a man who had already married a woman discovers something unclean or indecent about her after they got married. Now that wasn't a command, it was a concession. If this surfaces, well the Jewish men for 1,500 to 2,000 years, we're trying to figure out, well, now, how, how do we interpret the word unclean? If that's my out clause, unclean could mean a lot of different things. And so by the time Jesus came to earth, there were two big rabbinical schools with two famous dudes leading them who were teaching the people about the law. These teachers told people what the law said, what it meant, and how they were supposed to live. You see, we didn't all have, in that day and age, you didn't all have an Old Testament in your house. 
they didn't have publishing like that. You had to hear it read from the scrolls from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and from the scribes and from the priests. And so you had uh, Halal, the one guy, and you had Shammai, Rabbi Halal and Rabbi Shammai. These guys lived in the time of Jesus. These were the two main teachers about the law. One of them favored a more liberal view of the word unclean. One of them favored a more conservative view. And I, and I want to make sure I, I don't confuse them because I thought I did that in the first service. Um, Shammai was the conservative guy. Okay, Rabbi Shammai was the conservative one. Rabbi Halal was the liberal one. Rabbi Halal said the Mosaic law permits a husband to divorce the wife for a lot of different reasons that he finds displeasing. Can I give you a few of the things he taught Jewish men that were grounds for divorce? I'll just tell you a few. Number one, if your wife is too noisy, their law, he taught, well, how noisy is noisy? You may divorce your wife if your neighbors can hear your wife complaining outside of the walls of your home. You may divorce her under the law. Other reasons... These are real. Um, if your wife speaks to another man, if your wife goes out in public with loose hair, you may divorce her. If the husband finds another woman more attractive than his wife because she's become less attractive to him as she aged. Oh, this is real fun stuff, isn't it? If she burnt his dinner, I mean, you've heard all the, the pastor jokes about that. You know, my wife treats me like a priest. She brings me a burnt sacrifice every evening, right? <laughs> Had another, I won't say who, you could probably guess. One of the husbands who was in the first service said to me, he's like, man, if that would have been the case, I would have divorced my wife the first year. She uses the smoke alarm as a kitchen timer. <laughs> yeah, I won't out him or he might not make it to year 38, you know? <laughs> He favored a very liberal interpretation of Mosaic law. He said any of those things could be considered unclean. You see how lopsided and fraudulent this already is? Wives had no right to divorce their husbands for any reason. Only the husbands could divorce their wives and not without a trial. They could just send her a certificate and say, she burnt my dinner, therefore she's unclean and displeasing. Because here's what Jewish men expected out of marriage. Marriage should always make me happy. And if marriage does not make me happy, then I should be allowed out of it so I can seek happiness again. And you're thinking, that's really ancient thinking. Is it though? How many of you here today, if you were honest, would say, I expect marriage to make me happy. And if it doesn't, it's either my spouse's fault or marriage's fault. And in both cases, I should be allowed out because of no fault, irreconcilable differences. Can I just tell you something? If you get married to a person of the opposite sex, you're going to find there's a lot of irreconcilable differences. And not all of them are grounds for divorce, friends. Marriage, part of marriage, is about learning. There are some, uh, some things about my spouse and I that are absolutely the same, that we agree on, that we're in union with. And then there's some things about us that are different, and then you have to get this far. And their differences are not necessarily wrong. They're just different. 
you may not realize that it's okay to put the milk on the second shelf. You might not have even realized that it was a big deal until someone challenged that. And you might be thinking, this dummy, what is wrong with him? Who raised him? Put the milk on the second shelf. You might work on that guy the rest of his life and he might always just feel like the second shelf is just fine and those differences may be irreconcilable. I'm using an easy one. Their differences might be benefits to you because it's adding something to your life that's not bad for you, but it's good for you. And if someone didn't come along and join their life to yours, you'd never experience it. I mean, goodness, if you are both spenders, heaven help your budget. Oh, no, we're both spenders. Should we divorce? No! But you understand, some of us come into marriage with the totally incorrect expectations for what it should be. I've had more than one couple come to me and say, Pastor, we're dating or we're engaged and we're just going through a rough time and we know... We know the reason we're going through this is because we're not married yet. And once we get married, all these bumpy things in our dating relationship are going to be smooth. And I'm like, are you nuts? Marriage is not the solution to dating dysfunction. And at the same time, I don't want to explain to you, marriage is just this awful thing. It's terrible. It's a ball and a chain and your life is not your own and it's going to be arguing about the milk and the budget and whose hair is in the sink and it's going to be all this for the rest. It's not that either. But I'm telling you, if you expect marriage to be this unique dispenser of happiness and pleasantness that nothing else in life can provide, you're going to be disappointed. Marriage's responsibility is not to make you happy. It's not your spouse's assignment from God to provide happiness to you. Nor is it their assignment from God to provide misery to you. Your spouse is not your savior. And your spouse is not perfect. And your spouse will not make you happy every day. And marriage will not be pleasant every day of your life. But the Mosaic Law you know, you had this one group of people said, absolutely, and marriage should make you happy. And if, and if you're not happy in marriage, the, these teachers said it's two reasons. It's either your wife's fault or marriage's fault. And in both cases, God wants to leave you out of it. So just write out a divorce, serve it to your wife, send her away, and then move on. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Isn't it sad that they were more concerned about finding ways to get out of marriage rather than to finding ways to strengthen marriage. Second thing that we see here, um, the Pharisees distorted the law in two ways. First, they elevated Moses' concession into a command. And second, they advocated for men and men only to freely, at their own pleasure, divorce their wives simply by providing them a certificate of divorce. So they took... God's definition of marriage from Genesis 2.24 led it up to Moses' writing in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And then they distorted it to say, Moses commanded us to divorce our wives if they did something wrong, namely adultery. And on top of that, only men can divorce and they can do it freely at their own pleasure. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. In fact, let me read the second part of what he says in Matthew 19. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read this to you. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, does that sound 
more familiar to you now. They're basically saying, hey, is, is, is Rabbi Halal really right here that a man can divorce his wife for just any reason? That's what we want you to say. Jesus says, well, haven't you read the scriptures? They record from the beginning, this is Genesis 2, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. So Jesus just reinstitutes, he's like, let me give you the definition of marriage. One man to one woman for one lifetime. That's it. What about two men? No, he says man and a woman, husband and wife. What about two women? No, man and a woman, husband and wife. Oh, that's so narrow. That's so ancient. Well, it's the principle of the designer. If you design it, you get to define it. Genesis 2 says God designed marriage, so he defines marriage. Well, why? Why is he so rigid? I'll tell you why. Because marriage is not about romance primarily, and it's not about happiness primarily. It's, not about, it's about you having the experience, the mysterious experience of taking two totally unlike beings and making one unified life out of them and saying that was better than when we were by ourselves. Where did Jesus come up with that idea? That's the way God has relationship with you. A being totally unlike you. He's holy. We're not. He's all together. We're broken. He's righteous. We're dirty. He's pure. We're impure. He is flawless. We're flawed. And he says, I want to be in an inseparable unit union with you. I want to be in you. I want you to be in me. I want us to be together, taking two lives unified together, 1 Corinthians 6, so that his spirit can live inside of me and the two become one. Well, how does that, Pastor, how does that even work? It's a mystery. But I am so much better with God than without him. Do you understand that if God were in human form, I have given him cause to divorce me thousands of times. And yet every time, he takes me back. People will call God a foolish husband for taking me back as many times as he has. And yet he won't divorce me. You know when Paul talks about marriage? He says this is how you should understand marriage. Marriage is two lives coming together into one. It's one man and one woman who are completely opposite. They're not the same. It's not two men. It's not two women because that's not the image that God's trying to project forward. It's two unlike beings coming together and making one unified life together, which is why sometimes I get hesitant when people talk about, well, what about prenuptial agreements? Well, marriage in God's definition is there's no longer yours and mine. It's ours. And if you want to decide before you get married, if you're already thinking about who's it's going to be after you're done being married, you're already thinking in advance about divorce. You're already treating your future spouse with a skeptical eye. Now, there's not a Bible verse on it, but it's just something I get a little bit nervous about. So I'm like, you're already laying the foundation for a divorce before you even get married. And divorce is not a first option. It is an absolute last resort when all else has failed. And so you have this passage. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? They record one man, one woman. Verse six, since they're no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. 
So they ask him again, then why did Moses say in the law that the, man, that the man should give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? And they're just saying, then why did Moses command us to just divorce women through a certificate? And Jesus says, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But that's not what God originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Here's the response of Jesus' disciples. I love this. Jesus' disciples said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to get married at all. That's not the conclusion Jesus wants to leave us with. But he says, understand marriage is one man, one woman, one lifetime. Because marriage is my idea that I'm instituting because the world needs to have a visual of what it's like to have a relationship with me. And so I'm picking marriage to be the best way that people can understand what a relationship with me is like. They should be able to look at a Christian marriage and say, the love, the loyalty, the union of two unlike beings being completely together, completely inseparable through the highs and the lows devoted, complete in one another. Wow. How can I, what's a relationship with God like? It's, it's similar to that, but so much bigger. And isn't it a shame that most of our marriages aren't an arrow that points people to what a relationship with God is like? Well, how does that even work? How do two people share a life? Well, how do two people share a glove box or a dresser or a sink or a checkbook or a refrigerator? It's a mystery. Some of you have been married 5, 10, 20, 50 years. How would you make it that long? That's a mystery. I will tell you, though, that probably not every moment of every day was filled with happiness and pleasure. But you're married and you stayed married. Not every moment I've had with Jesus has been pleasurable. Can I just be honest with you? Not every moment that I've had with Jesus has delivered to me happiness. Sometimes Jesus, out of his love for me, there's moments of silence, there's moments of pain, there's moments of grief. But yet he doesn't put me away. He loves and he loves and he loves and he loves and he's loyal and he's faithful and he's good. And I am better with him than without him. And he would be a fool if he were a husband on this earth to keep taking me back. And yet he does. So how should we be any less open and gracious and willing in marriages to strengthen marriages and look for ways to stay married and strengthen our marriages rather than get out of them. He, so the third thing that he says, here's how he corrects it. Jesus reestablished marriage as a divine institution. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Divorce was not a commandment, but a concession to human weakness. Jesus says the reason we have the event of a divorce is not because God intended it that way. It's not because it was God's plan. It's not because it was God's design. It's because, Jesus, it's because of your hard hearts. And what does that mean? It can mean a number of different things, but when two people can't be in union anymore, at least one of the two of them has a hard heart. It could be that that person has done wrong and they're unrepentant. They're, they're unrepentant and it's unresolved and they're unwilling and they're not contrite. I've done wrong and I don't care. Or you're saying I've done wrong, I don't think it's wrong, and I don't want to repent. You've got a hard heart. Or on the other side, you've got someone who's, you've you, you got a spouse who says, listen, I know I did wrong, and I'm sorry, and I'm changing, and I want to, and the other person says, no, 
I will not forgive. I will not give grace. I will not reconcile. I will not restore. Hard hearts. Hard hearts. Well, Pastor, Jesus does give some grounds for divorce. Yes, but they're not commandments. They're concessions. Do you know the difference between a commandment and a concession? Does that at least make sense, or do I need to help understand? Do you understand the difference between a commandment and concession? No, okay. Um, I heard someone say no, so let me help you. Um, best illustration I can give you is this. In the Nower House, we have some commandments, and we have to choose which hills we die on. I don't call them commandments. But with our boys, the expectation is after breakfast, not before, they brush their teeth, and they floss before they get on the school bus. And at night, after snack and before bed, they brush and they floss. We die on that hill. Dentists are expensive, so we die on those hills. Plus, you know, if your boys like to have hummus for their evening snack, please, please brush and floss. Because I don't want to have to wake up to that in the morning. But seeing who's still with me, because I can't tell. <laughs> the rules. There are times, though, where we will make a concession. For example, Friday night of this past week, my wife took the boys up to Bel Air. Her parents were back in town. They had been in Florida for three months. They came back in town and wanted to see, you know, Kendra and the boys and have, have dinner and spend some time together. And they were having a good time, and, and they were watching the ball game. And it got me, I'm telling you, all your kids, what is going on today? What did you feed them on the way in here? <laughs> It's like a constant, no shame on the way out. You know, they'll put my number up there and it's just going to stay up there because I can't go get them. But, um, you know, they were up there late. Our boys usually go to bed around 8.30 and so it was 10 o'clock and they were just coming home. So what had happened uh, was my youngest, the six-year-old, fell totally asleep on the way home. So asleep that we, could trans- we were able to transfer him from the car to the bed without him waking up. Now, he went to bed not in his pajamas, went to bed in his play clothes, but we just made a decision. It is 10.30. He's completely asleep. Do we need to honor the commandment to brush your teeth by waking the boy up out of a dead sleep and then brushing his teeth against his will? Or do we make a concession here in this instance where it's, okay, this is not ideal, but under these grounds and these circumstances, we'll permit it. We conceded. We also, though, have not commanded the boys, listen, if you haven't brushed your teeth by 10 o'clock and you're tired, you can, you know, we command you to not brush your teeth. We didn't command them that they have to do that. It was a concession. Now, my six-year-old didn't understand that because at two in the morning, the little rule follower, black and white, woke up and realized, I'm in bed. My teeth have not been brushed. And he was in fear of going to not heaven. He's like, I have violated the commandments of the house. And he's waking me. He came and wake me. Dad, Dad, I didn't brush my teeth. I'm like, it's okay, buddy. You were asleep and tired. No, because you said I have, I can't skip brushing my teeth. You have, I have to go do it right now. And I'm like, well, I haven't commanded that, but goodness sakes alive. So we help him over the bathroom. He brushes his teeth, goes back to bed. We didn't command him that he had to skip brushing his teeth. It was just a concession. To the Jews, Moses is writing on divorce. They elevated it to a commandment. If your wife is unclean, you must divorce her by giving her a certificate of divorce. If she commits adultery, I command you to divorce her. 
If she abandons you, I command you. If she's abusive, I command you. And Jesus says, I'm not commanding divorce in any situation. Because there are some who are in an unhappy marriage and they're waiting to see if their spouse will cross one of the lines that they consider to be biblical grounds for divorce and say, aha, got them. Here's my out. I've known people who say, my spouse won't divorce me, so I'm going to go have an affair so they can divorce me. It gets that bad in people's relationships sometimes. They don't want to stay together. They want to find any way out. And that, that's the game. I know it's, here's the game. I know it's a sin to divorce them without biblical grounds, so I'll go sin so they can divorce me for righteous grounds. What? The human heart is hard. It's hard. Divorce is not a commandment. Now, I have to balance this all out because we live in Pandora's box. And I recognize I might not have answered some of your questions to your satisfaction. The reality is that I can't add on to what Jesus says and I can't give you less than what Jesus says because there's a lot of, Pastor, you don't know my background. You don't know my set of circumstances. You don't, you're, you're right, I don't. I don't. And some of us would really like a liberal interpretation of what God says, divorce is okay for you and divorce is not okay for you. Generally speaking, theologians agree that there are two biblical grounds where God will permit divorce in some cases. All those words are important. Start with the letter A. Adultery and abandonment. Pastor Jesus didn't talk about abandonment. You're right, because he wasn't asked about abandonment. Paul, however, 30 years later, recognized something new. Jesus had gone to the cross. He had risen from the dead. Salvation through Jesus was possible. There was a new covenant, and there was this new tension that was popping up in marriages where you had two people who got married Without knowing Christ, they got married, husband and wife. After they got married in Paul's day, there were occasions where one of the spouses would, would experience salvation through Jesus and live for Jesus. And in some of those cases, the unsaved spouse did not want to remain married to a saved spouse. And they would put that saved spouse under an ultimatum. Either you walk away from Christ and stay married to me. Or you stay devoted to Christ and divorce me. Paul said in those situations, those situations of abandonment, of desertion. That God permitted divorce with no penalty on the one who was remaining loyal to Christ. But Paul also said, if that was your scenario, if you weren't married, if you weren't saved before you got married, and you, sir, have found salvation in Jesus, and your wife has not found salvation in Jesus, but she wants to remain married, don't use your conversion as a reason to divorce her. Because he says, your conversion to Christ may be the very instrument God uses to bring her to Jesus. Now, some of you say, awesome, missionary dating and flirt to convert. No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. You see how our heart wants to say, let's make that more palatable. No, but it does make sense. And so most of us would say that the totality of Scripture teaches that when there is adultery, when there has been sexual sin outside of marriage, 
in some cases, God permits. Well, why do you keep saying in some cases? Well, because here's what we skip over. If there's sin in your marriage, have we left room for repentance? Pastor, I don't like this. I'm not asking you to like it. I'm just sharing the truth with you. I believe in a gospel of redemption and repentance. I'm not saying that it's always possible. But when you go to a spiritual leader and you say, listen, my spouse has done such and such and so and so and I'm ready to divorce them. I don't start the conversation with divorce. I say, I I understand. This is very painful and difficult. Let me just ask a few questions first. Is marriage for a lifetime? Has your spouse been repentant? Are they remorseful? Is there a change in their behavior? Have you extended forgiveness? Are you willing to work towards reconciliation? You may find this hard to believe, but I can tell you not every marriage where there is adultery has ended in divorce. In some cases, there has been hard work, but grace, forgiveness, unity, healing, and restoration because the Bible teaches do not sin. Sin is deep and it is great, but God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater. Abandonment. I realize that's a, that's a reality. Some, some of you have experienced a situation where a spouse just simply said, I don't want to be married to you anymore and there's nothing you can do to stop me and they're kind of right. It's the world we live in. You've been abandoned. Despite your best efforts, it's not what you wanted, not what you asked for. But there's no judgment from God on you. No situations. Awesome. I would just drive my spouse away so they no 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 no. Doesn't work that way. Now there's a third category, and I have to be very careful about this, but it's it's not here. But it's one that I tend to fall into this school. There's some debate on this, and I won't bore you with all the debate, but what about abuse, Pastor? Adultery, abandonment, abuse. What about abuse? Abuse is a word I have to be careful with because we don't all define it the same way. Is that at least fair? Okay. Some people have a very broad definition of abuse. In other words, you know, my wife got upset at me three years ago and told me I did something stupid or called me a dummy or called me, she called, that's being verbally abusive in that person's definition. And therefore, since I've been abused, I have grounds for divorce, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. Then you have, you know, a woman who says, my husband has an anger issue and he beats me. I'm not going to stand up here this morning and try and go through every possible hypothetical situation in which abuse takes place. I see nothing in the word that says and I had a family left this church over this interpretation, but I just said, I, I asked, I put this person to the test. I said, show me in the Bible where it commands a woman to endure unrelenting physical beatings from her husband. Show me that. And they couldn't. And I said, there's an enormous pressure on pastors today for unspecified issues like Abuse. Where we don't have a verse to stand on. And we say, well, this seems to fall outside. Jesus just said adultery. You're right. But he wasn't asked about abuse and he wasn't asked about abandonment. 30 years later, Paul 
a spiritual leader of his day, expanded circumstantial situations where God permitted divorce. And so you're like, well, pastor, are you adding on the word? No, I'm just trying to interpret. I understand and I concede. See, in God's kingdom, no woman or man in a marriage would put their hands on each other out of anger. They wouldn't do it. But we're broken people. And so I am in that camp of, yeah, if there's, I believe that there are absolutely instances and very sad stories. And I'm sure some of you, this is way in your kitchen. Some of you have experienced this. And I'm in that camp of, I believe that there are cases of extreme abuse. Where if the abused has to dissolve the relationship, that there is no judgment from God on that person for doing that. It's an act of physical safety in their world. But it's a tough topic. It touches all of us. It impacts us all in one way, shape, form, or another. God doesn't command a person to divorce, but he concedes and he permits in certain circumstances. But his message to those who are married, stay married. Be gracious. Learn patience. Be loving. The tough part of it. But pastor, does God really want me to be in an unhappy marriage? Does God really want me to be in an unpleasant marriage? It's difficult to answer that with a broad brush because you're going to take your situation and read into it. I've given you some of the outliers this morning. But I will also tell you this. Irreconcilable differences is not biblical grounds for divorce. That's our modern way of trying to do what they were doing back in Jesus' day. Let's expand the definition so I can get out of an unhappy marriage. It didn't work out. So we're just going to, that's not God's definition of divorce. And how did Jesus talk about that back in the day? He said, if you divorce your wife for any reason other than this thing I permit you to divorce for, if you do it for any other reason, I don't recognize that as divorce. In my mind, the covenant is still to your wife. That marriage is still supposed to be together. And if you divorce for any other reason, I don't recognize it. And so if you're still married in my eyes and you go marry, Jesus assumes that these people are gonna remarry, especially the wives, because how could they be provided for back in that day? It's not like they could go out and get a career. It was a very lopsided society at that point. Jesus is saying, if you're in a marriage and you divorce in a way that I don't recognize, I still think you're married. And if you go marry another person while you're still married here, that's called bigamy and that's adultery. That's what Jesus means. If you divorce for a reason that I don't concede and you remarry everybody who's part of that in my eyes has committed adultery now here this leaves us in a really icky spot this morning because what if you're sitting here today and you say pastor um divorce is part of my story once twice three four however many times pastor as I sit here this morning and I'm looking back if I'm really honest with myself and this is very uncomfortable the reasons why we divorced didn't check any of those boxes. What do I do? I'll tell you probably what you're feeling right now is guilty, shame, anger, hurt, regret. What, what, what do I do with that? 
Let me just give you some good news. Divorce is not an unpardonable sin. It's not. Jesus doesn't want you to spend another moment of your life walking around feeling guilty and ashamed. He loves you, and he wants you to be healed. He wants you to be forgiven. And if you recognize, here's the thing you can't do. None of us in this room can go back to yesterday and change anything about it. You can't do it, and I can't do it. I wish there are some things that I could do, and until Elon Musk figures it out, we're stuck living in today. The other thing you can't do is go to tomorrow and make any decision about tomorrow. That's Jesus' next statement. Don't just start promising all kinds of things you have no control over. The only day you'll ever do something about is today. You'll never make a decision on a tomorrow because when it's tomorrow, it'll be today. And you can't make a decision about yesterday. You must choose today to glorify the Lord with your life. Well, pastor, what about, listen, have you just confessed to the Lord, Lord, I acknowledge that a decision I made in my past broke your commandments and violated your law. Will you please forgive me? Have you started there? Then go there. God's going to lecture me. Nope, he's going to forgive you. He's going to be upset. Nope, he's going to give you grace. Well, I don't deserve that. Exactly. He doesn't want you to live the rest of the life with that. But I bet you've learned something now and you're wiser now. You can grow from that now. Well, pastor, should I go back to that marriage? No, 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 no. No, that's not what he's saying either. Choose today. I've known a lot of people that have experienced divorce and they would tell me readily, Pastor, I know. Some people say, I didn't know when I was divorcing that it was a violation of God's principles. Okay. Some people say, I knew it was a violation of God's principles and I just did it anyway. Okay. Was it wrong? Yes. Was it a sin against the Lord? Yes. Well, what do we do when we realize we've sinned? Well, we start by feeling pretty bad about it. Absolutely. And what does that drive you to do? You either repent or you self-medicate. This doesn't work. This does. Come to him today. Maybe you have asked him to forgive you and you still feel ashamed and guilty. Then you need to forgive you. Give yourself the same. I had this conversation with somebody two nights ago. I said to this person, You have the amazing capacity to be gracious and forgiving for other people. You have no grace and compassion for yourself. Give yourself some grace and some compassion. If you're in a marriage today, invest in your marriage. Stay healthy. If you go through bumpy seasons and bumpy patches or a couple years of of difficult times, listen, if it's not happy, that doesn't mean get out of it. If it's not pleasant today, that doesn't mean give up on it. Learn something about Jesus. Lean into him. Because can we be honest with one another? In the marriage between you and Jesus, you're not always making him happy every day. You're not always making him pleasant. You're not always giving to him the kind of intimacy that he wants to receive from you. And yet, he loves and is faithful. And if he can be that to us, we can be that way, even in difficult seasons of marriage. Here's what I'll also tell you. Read your Bible and pray together at home. Difficult to have a lot of stuff grow in between you if you're connected spiritually. And, and, and something very practical, make sure you hang out with at least some friends who will be a source of accountability and an encouragement and a support for a healthy marriage in your life. Because your friends are going to have a lot of influence over you when things aren't going right 
in a marriage. I've told this story before. I remember being invited to a party uh, after the end of a little league season. I sat around the table. I took my son there, and I was invited to sit around the table with 10 or 12 other couples, the parents of kids on my team. And what they were talking about when I sat down was divorce attorneys. Now, to be honest, I don't have a lot of experience talking to divorce attorneys. The only experience I have is there was an elder in a church I served at previously who was a divorce attorney, so I I knew him. But I, I... I found out of everybody around the table, I was the only one who was still married to the person I originally married. Everybody else had been divorced at least once. And in one situation, there, were, there was two couples who had each gotten divorced, and now they married the divorced partner of the other one. And they're all sitting around the table. It was just weird. And they were kind of cutting up and joking about divorce and attorneys, and tips and tricks of the trade, and ah-ha-has, and this and that, and well, we got off with this, and we got off with that, and, and the one guy finally just said, you know, at the end of the day, why are any of us even married? It's just a piece of paper anyway. Our world has a very low view of marriage. God has such a high view, because marriage is filled with so many blessings that are unique to marriage, just like being unmarried has unique blessings. Being married has blessings, You have the opportunity to have a family. You have the opportunity to find a sacred union and friendship that's different than anything else you can experience. You have the opportunity to share life with someone who in some ways is like you and in some ways is unlike you and creates a fullness of your life experience you might not have other ways. Jesus even says, and and, and Paul reinforces, that marriage in some ways is a remedy for the lust of our hearts because it allows you to experience sexual sexuality in a very healthy way in a monogamous marriage relationship. There's so many things. But we don't want to have a low view of marriage. We want to have a high view of marriage. We understand that because of our hard-heartedness in the broken world we live in, that divorce is an unfortunate reality. But it's a concession, not a commandment. It's a last resort, not a first option. And it's limited to certain grounds. I would encourage you to be around friends. Not like that table. Because guess what? If I'm having trouble in my marriage and those are the friends that I hang out, are they going to be advocating for me to stay married or to get divorced? You need to be in community with people who have a high view of those things. I've got two minutes left, so let me finish. Just give you the last one real quick. Swearing oaths. Moses' law required people to keep the oaths they made. They're quoting from the Old Testament. The Old Testament was not anti-oath or oath is mandatory. They just said, if you make an oath, keep it. Pharisees said, "Mm, that's hard. And their problem was if we swear an oath and the Lord is the guarantor of that oath, if we go back on our word, we're going to have to deal with him. So they came up with new formulas of making oaths. They said, here's how we get around it. Here's how it is less, uh, the, the penalty is lower for breaking an oath. Just don't swear by God. Swear by Jerusalem, swear by your body, swear by the earth. But if you use the words by God, you're going to get a big time punishment if you break it. So if you really need someone to believe you're going to make good on a promise, make one of these lower versions of the promise. And what Jesus was, they distorted the oath. They're just saying only the oaths where you mention God's name are binding. So just don't mention, don't just say, I swear to God I will do, but don't ever do that. Oh, goodness, if you do that, lightning's going to strike you. You can just swear by the piano. And then when you lie, piano's not going to do anything to you. What a weird world we live in. And yet, can you go just buy a car and say, don't worry, just take my word for it, I'll pay for it. Just let me drive it home. You're like, are you kidding me? Get that in writing. When we signed a lease agreement here, the landlord wanted to make sure he had everything in writing about us, but to be honest, we wanted everything in writing about him. Why? Because we're untruthful. 
We want it binding. Here's what Jesus says. It shouldn't be like that, but because you're untruthful, we kind of need some things like this every now and again. But the point Jesus makes is the formula of how you word a promise or swear an oath is irrelevant. Because here's what he says. You're trying to get around me. You're swearing by the earth. Well, who made the earth? Well, you did. Right. So I'm still involved. If you swear by your head, who made your head? Well, you did. Right. I'm still involved. If you swear by your city, whose city is it? Well, it's yours. God's saying, listen, I hear everything and see everything, so your little formula means nothing. Whether you, here's what he's saying. Whether you swear, cross your heart, hope to die, or you don't swear at all, it's irrelevant. It means nothing. Here's what means something. Your word should be your word. You should keep your word. If you make a promise, keep it. Well, pastor, does that mean that I should not put my hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing? It's irrelevant. I have no problem doing it because whether I put my hand on the Bible or I don't, I'm going to tell the truth. Makes no difference. Well, should we make any vows? Jesus says don't make any vows at all. Jesus is saying you shouldn't have to make a vow, but he's not saying that a vow is wrong. He's just saying if you make a vow, keep it. If you vow for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, till death do we part? Shouldn't you keep your word? No one wants to agree. You're sitting next to your spouse. You better speak up. <laughs> this is what Jesus is saying. Well, how do I do that? A couple things. Don't make rash promises, says Ecclesiastes. Think about what you promise before you promise it. Some of us just want to please people. Say, I absolutely will be there at noon. You can count on me. And you know you have no idea if your schedule's clear. I promise I will never, officer, I will never drive past the speed limit again if you just, I just promise. You broke this law coming here today. Pastor, I know how to get around this. I just won't promise anything to anybody. You can't live like that. You're going to be perpetually non-committal. What's a non-committal Christian? I'm just not going to commit to anything because I can't keep my word to anything. I don't want to paint myself in a corner. That's not what it's saying. It's saying don't make rash promises. Don't give people misguided optimism. Don't guarantee people something that's beyond your control. There are circumstances in life that could prevent you honoring your word. So think about that. Don't have this need to impress people by adding exaggerations or superlatives onto things. Let your word be, you know, watch out for words like always or never. You always nag. You never take out the trash. I will never, ever, ever miss the bus when you get home from school. That one bit me. My six-year-old, Daddy, I'm nervous about getting on the bus. What if you're not here to get me off? I'll be here to get you off the bus. What if you're not? Buddy, I'll always be here to get, and then one day on like the 110th day of school, there was an accident on 695 and I missed it. And let me tell you, my six-year-old gave it to me. You promised me. I mean, the anger and betrayal. And he's like, you promised you would never miss the bus. You have lied to me. I'm like, buddy, I'm so sorry. You're not sorry. <laughs> and on the one hand, I'm thinking, this dude just needs to get over it. What do I want him to get over? What do I want him to get over? No, I'm, here's the broken part of it. You know, son, you should just accept that sometimes we promise things that we can't make good on. I don't want him to have to accept that. He was right. You know what I should have done? Son, I'm going to do everything humanly possible 
to not ever miss the bus. But it's possible I might miss the bus. And if that happens, here's what we're going to do. Why didn't you do that? Because I didn't want to deal with the inconvenience of that conversation. You know what that's called? That's called selfish. It was more convenient for me to give him misguided optimism and promise him something I couldn't control, hoping to kick the can down the road and never have to deal with it. You see what I'm saying? Our yes should just mean yes. Our no should just mean no. Because kingdom people are people of their word. Unfortunately, in the world we live in, that's just not enough anymore. So Jesus is not forbidding you from making a vow, from making a commitment, for signing a contract, for, for if you're called to testify in court, put your hand on the Bible. Why? Because the reality is, is if I'm a kingdom person, I'm going to be a person of my word, whether I put my hand on the Bible or a piano or someone's forehead. or my, I'm going to tell the truth. Those other formulas are irrelevant. What matters is my heart. And we need to be people of our word. And if we say yes, we mean yes. If we say no, we mean no. If we say you can count on me, we can count on you. And we're wise enough to say, listen, some, and some of you do this. I'll, I'll see you next Sunday, Lord willing. Okay, well, yeah, you're, you're right. I got you. In other words, I'll be here, but there's some things I can't control about that. If, if I can humanly be here, I will, but there might be some things beyond my control that I can't commit to. But if you commit, if you want to get married one day, I want you to be aware, one man, one woman for one lifetime. And when you, God puts it in your heart to be married and you meet that person, you'll say, and that's what I want. But if you say, ooh, maybe, you know, one man, one woman for a few years and then maybe try somebody, eh, better not to get married yet. Be people of our word. Team, will you come? Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room right now. I especially pray for those who divorce has been a reality of their life. And as they're sitting here this morning, there's just, they're still hurt. Father, your heart and my heart is not to send those people out of here feeling worse than when they came in. You are a healer, you're a comforter, you're a forgiver, and you're a restorer. And they're here today not to be beat over the head with things they already feel uh, that they're hurt about. You're here to minister to them. And so I pray in this moment that you'll just release grace, healing, forgiveness, restoration, We're thankful that you are a God who covers over the sins of our past, never to remind us of them again. And so today I pray that it maybe it's just for one person. They just needed to hear that you love them, that you forgive them. Maybe another one just needs to hear, sir, ma'am, I permitted you out of that relationship. There was no judgment on you then. There's no judgment on you now. Don't carry around someone else's weight and guilt for something they did. Be a victim no longer. You're a victor in Christ. Lord, help us to be people of our word. And help us, those of us who are in marriages today, those of us who aspire to be in marriage or to be married again, help us to glorify you in the way that we approach the mystery of what marriage is, of one man and one woman for one lifetime. Lord, that we will be men and women of our word, that our yes means yes and our no means no. 
Jesus, I'm so thankful you've had every opportunity to send me, to give me a certificate and send me away. And yet you love me with an uncommon kind of love that even on the days where I'm not delivering happiness and pleasantness to you, you don't give me any less of you. Lord, even in those hours or days or moments where our marriages may not deliver to us the happiness and pleasantness that we expect out of them. Help us to lean into you and to understand you and embrace these seasons as a way to grow in Christ-likeness in our lives. Lord, that we may live in marriages that honor you and glorify you and point the arrow to you, that the world can see how good and lovely it is when we dwell together in that kind of unity. And for anybody who's here this morning or listening to things online, if you know that today you and God are not right, that there is sin in your heart that's keeping you from relationship with God, I pray right now that there's a desire that sparks up in your heart to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and to be right before God, that you're ready to stop living for you and start living for him, that you're ready for forgiveness and a new beginning in life today. And if that's you, all you need to do is to believe to confess that to him today, a willingness to repent from the life that you're living and come under his leadership and his kingdom. You can pray a simple prayer and encourage you to pray this right now. Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm ready to be forgiven. Please forgive me, restore me, heal me, grow me, change me. I'm ready for a new beginning right now. I believe you, Jesus, that you died on the cross in my place, that you rose from the dead and that you're alive today. And I welcome you into my heart. In your name I pray, amen, amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.